Welcome, and thank you so much for joining us for this first episode of the Centuro series. Centuro Global as a company is an exclusive network of startups, entrepreneurs, investors, and the best service providers we can find around the world with the goal of helping companies to grow globally. Uh, so what we've uh, today's recording is one of the webinars we set up where we speak to experts in their fields and uh, address different topics to help companies grow. So uh, thanks so much for joining us. Today's topic, we're going to be looking at startups, uh, investment options and, and different ways to survive through these hard times. Um, so I'll let our host and chairwoman for Centura Global, Asma, introduce everybody in the recording. Uh, but I also just wanted to let you know that this was recorded in late April. So some of the information, the government programs, etc., may have been updated since then. But hopefully you'll find enough sort of gems within that that'll still be valuable. Thanks so much and we hope you enjoy. Okay, thank you very much, and I'd like to welcome everyone for joining. Um, and as Ben said, my name's Asma. I head up the Centuro Global here. Um, I'd like to welcome our speakers today. Um, so firstly, I'd like to welcome Henry Warwood, um, well-known industry expert, um, uh, and very passionate about sort of early-stage business finance and high-growth companies. He works at Bowhurst and probably known to many of the attendees here today. So Henry, please do join me. Uh, I think you just have to unmute your mic and camera and hopefully that will allow you to come in. Um, and then I will also introduce you to Philip. Um, Philip Salter um, is the founder of um, uh, the Entrepreneurs Network. He is a journalist by background. We're um, having worked with City AM and Forbes magazine. He now works um, on a number of initiatives, lobbying government on, on many campaigns. And one of the campaigns has been Save Our Startups. Um, and both he and Henry have contributed um, towards the introduction of the Future Fund, which was announced on Monday and which we will talk about um, hopefully during the webinar. So again, welcome to our speakers. So today's session is really going to focus on the impact the current pandemic is having um, on the startup ecosystem. And we've had so many questions from people, um, from startups particularly, you know, talking about what companies are doing, what other um, uh, startups are doing in this current crisis and how they're managing. And I think real life examples or, or areas where they feel they can actually take tips from are going to be very helpful. Um, so I read some really startling statistics the other day, having read a couple of articles, and it's not just the actual business community that's suffering. So for example, if we've gone through this coronavirus, it's, you know, if people are running out of cash or investments running out or, or they're facing difficulties and challenges, it's not just a business problem. It's actually a societal problem. We see that obviously jobs are impacted, um, households are impacted, and therefore it becomes quite a, a you know, a, quite a wider problem. Um, and, and with people employing millions, millions uh, in, this, in this particular industry or sector. So before we get to the initiative of the Future Fund and what that will do, I'd just like to discuss and debate the problems companies are currently facing right now. So Henry, if I may come to you first, you track under Bohurst thousands of companies, their activity, their investment, their business models. So what have you seen over the last few weeks? I mean, what kind of disruption are companies facing? And do you have any, obviously without names, any examples of what companies are doing or how are they managing to survive and thrive in this, in this climate? Um, yeah, 
I would start by dividing it, the effects into primary and secondary. Uh, so there are the direct effects of coronavirus and in particular um, the, the lockdown that we are seeing on these businesses. Now that um, impact is obviously distributed differently across, um, across sectors. Uh, and indeed we are seeing some companies positively impacted. So we've recently com completed an exercise uh, to look at all of the 30,000 high growth companies in the UK that, that we track and look at the nature and the severity of coronavirus's impact on their business. And that's, that's the direct um, impact on, on their businesses. So we've been looking at, uh, and these, these will vary from sector to sector, but we look at the companies that are experiencing increased lead times, um, companies that are experiencing surge in demand, companies that are having to lay off staff, not just furlough them, but, um, but lay them off completely. Um, and, and all sorts of things like that. And we've been building up a classification rating of sort of critical through to potentially um, uh, potentially positive on those. So those are the, the sort of primary ones that I can talk about in, in more depth. And then it's probably useful at this point, and this will lead on to talking about the future fund of the sort of secondary effects where businesses are, undergo are, are experiencing problems because changes in the market, particularly the fundraising market, um, which have been caused by the uncertainty uh, economic upheaval, if you like, um, we're in is, is causing. Um, so th those are sort of the, the, the two categories. Okay. And so, obviously, so, so from these categories, I mean, are you able to sort of dig some deeper into maybe some examples of what challenges companies are facing and how are they overcoming them? So some of the biggest questions that I get, or the most frequent questions that we get are around, you know, what the practical solutions that companies are dealing with. So whilst the government's announced many initiatives and, and obviously in the last three weeks, people have now come to a stage where they've looked at the furloughing, they've looked at the civils, they've looked at all the grants options that there are. But what can companies do? I mean, there are many, especially the startup. Obviously, this fund is only just coming on Monday. We still don't know what the finer detail is and when that's going to sort of be released. I mean, they're saying it will start from May. But at the same time, companies are facing hardship now. They are facing difficulties now. So beyond this sort of appetite for investment and all the things, that's uncertainty that's going on in the marketplace, what can we offer as perhaps, as, you know, examples or maybe even practical um, uh, um solutions or tips to companies what should they be thinking about to survive because we know i mean i will go into later you know other other areas of uh, what companies can do but i think just to start this off the biggest problem that i've got i mean we've had we did a survey just before this webinar and we've had i would say probably 75 percent of the people that responded their biggest question was how do we generate income right now and how do we survive so what are companies how are what, what companies are doing it well i'm sure so uh, so going, going back to our data a little, um, obviously I mentioned the, the sectoral discrepancies. You also see um, discrepancies by stage as well. So the, the, the problem is sort of three-dimensional three from, from that point of view. Uh, we've actually seen that the earliest stage businesses um, are least uh, impacted. Um, and there are probably, probably two reasons for that. One is the, the, the sectoral biases. The, the youngest companies are typically more tech-led. They are more able to carry on doing what they were doing um, you know, remotely. Um, they're less reliant on, on headcount and, and personnel from, from that point of view. And also because of their size, they, they can adjust um, more rapidly. If you are a smaller company and you defer um, the, the three hires you were looking to make this month, that has a, a meaningful impact on, on the amount of runway you, you have. Um, whereas, uh, you know, once your um, employee count is much higher and your, your costs in that regard 
are, are, are a bit more set. Um, for large companies, that's that's where it becomes more difficult. And then you therefore look at um, schemes like the, um, the the furloughing scheme. Yeah. Okay, great. Thank you. So, Philip, just following on from that then, um, uh, so you've obviously been involved with the Save Our Startup campaign as well, and I guess there must have been a lead up to that. So what have been you been seeing in your network? What have been people saying to you, and what are the challenges that they've been facing? Um, yeah, so in terms of the Save Our Startup campaign, I suppose that came about because there were a lot of different voices talking to Treasury about a lot of different things. And I think the feedback from Treasury was that there was too much noise and not enough kind of clarity from people. Um, the Save Our Startup campaign was purposely broad. So it did have the model of something like the Future Fund within it, but it also has um, recommendations around speeding up um, delivery of grants um, um, and R&D tax credits, and also potentially looking at things around um, tax breaks like SEIS, EIS and VCT levels. Um, so it's not just, you know, it's not a kind of blueprint, I, I suppose, would be fair to say, even though it's obviously it's pretty influential on what's on, on what's been decided. Um, and obviously we'll come on to more of that, given all the questions on, on that. Um, in terms of our position in general and our the views of the entrepreneurs in our network. So we have a network of kind of over 10,000 entrepreneurs who kind of receive our information and they're kind of biased towards tech and biased towards high growth because that's kind of the things that we're interested in. Um, and I'd say they're probably more adaptable than the average business. So we've, we've definitely got a sense that people are being very proactive within our community. Um, at least the ones that are reaching out their biggest challenges is the kind of is highlighted by all the questions is actually what are the kind of details of these policies and you know how can they access the cash and we've seen that obviously with sybils and the access to the loans has been um you know far from ideal um i think the furloughing seems to have been at least so far has worked better the system kind of held up under scrutiny and that seems to be working um better i think so so at the start, I think we were quite early in saying, in I guess recognizing the potential risk of this from a public health perspective, not because we're brilliant or anything, but just because we followed people who really did um, kind of pointed out early that this could be a big risk. So we're like supportive of the lockdown as in we understand the lockdown. I think what the where the government needs to be now is giving businesses not necessarily a time frame because obviously that's all driven by public health, but actually a sense of um, what the processes are going to be for opening up the economy once the things are in place for that to happen. I suppose that's the critical point that other countries now are doing and the UK isn't doing. Um, just to say, once we have uh, this, once we're in this position, then these uh, these industries will be coming back. We'll be able to, you know, work, we'll, we'll be kind of back online and won't be. And then I think business owners will be not in a position to plan perfectly, but be able to plan a little bit better. So I think the, the problem is the, is the time frame. If we knew that this was going to be over in a month, three months, six months, 12 months, change that changes the whole kind of scenario planning. But obviously we don't know that, but we should know a little bit more about once we get to a stage of knowing roughly that, like what, what it could look like. Great. No, that's really helpful. And I think just picking up on both your points of uncertainty, and I think uncertainty is the biggest question we've got right now because no one really knows what's going to happen in the future. And the government obviously isn't giving any clarity on what the exit strategy might look like. Um, so we've had this obviously for a number of years with Brexit as well. Uh, the last three years, you know, in the investor scene and the startup scene, and I, I was at the TLA event in November last year. Um, and a lot of the questions around some of the big investors, you know, when they're sitting there, I talk to a lot of investors all the time. And over the past 12 months, Many have come back and said to me, there's uncertainty. We don't know what's happening with Brexit. So yes, there is money, but we don't know, 
you know, what the future holds. So we are waiting and we are going to see how we're going to invest. And that uncertainty obviously was quite difficult for some companies because cash was needed at that time. Now, we've come out of Brexit in January where a decision was made um, and then we've hit with this crisis. <laughs> um, and now investors are doing the same thing. They're saying, well, it's a period of uncertainty. We're holding back. We don't know what's going to happen in the future. I've seen a lot of them pivot their directions, acquisitions rather than you know investment directly into, into startup companies. So, Henry, I'd just like to ask again, I'm, I'm seeing lots of reports coming out of your platform um, where we're seeing lots of companies are securing investment right now. And they've been successful in doing so. But generally, and what does the investment scene look like? And um, if those companies who are managing to succeed, I mean, what is different about them and, and how are they doing it? Um, yeah, so, so there are parallels with um, what we saw with Brexit. And then there, there are obviously uh, key differences. I, I think um, sort of generally and with regards to, to fundraising, um, the main difference with this um, pandemic is how quickly it forced investors to slam the brakes on. Um, we sort of entered uh, an increasing period of uncertainty with with Brexit, and then sort of slowly slowly came out of it. Um, whereas we we entered a, a period of really extreme uncertainty very quickly with this. Um, so that that's what we saw is we we saw basically the investment levels fall off off a cliff, um, as as nearly every investor, apart from completing a few deals that were so close to the line that, that there was no sense in, in not. Um, we, we saw everyone sort of take a, take a step back, and um, you know this this is from individual angels all the way through to to VCs uh, and, and beyond. Um, you know, you had to stop and think, you know, what's our what's our strategy here? And we did see then some delays because you know you wait a day and there's more news, and you feel like you have more clarity. Although there, there is, as, as Philip points out, um, the key bits of of clarity are, are not yet forthcoming um, from the government. Um, so so that. Is sort of felt like bad news as we as we sort of fell off the cliff. Um, but in in some ways now where we are, it's good news because that that was the trough. Basically, it can't it had it had nowhere to go lower than than that. Um, and actually, we're seeing things um, pick up again uh, recently, and it's partly just deals that were sort of sort of deferred and put on hold whilst um, people figured out their strategies. Um, and partly just you know new new deals are are being done. They're, they're fewer than than before, much fewer than before, but they are picking up again. So we've we've had the low point. Uh, I think is possibly if you if you really want to um, dig for the, the positive spin, um, but uh, we're, we're, you know it's going to be a long time before we're back up at pre-coronavirus um, fundraising levels. But, um, but but deals are happening. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that's very positive because I have seen some of the data come through and, you know, when you're looking and it's quite encouraging to see that there are companies that are still securing uh, investment. And personally, when I've spoken to both angel investors, I've spoken to VCs. I mean, I have a huge network that I talk to. A lot of them have put a stop to uh, the activity that they're undertaking. And I think a lot of the uh, investors are coming back and saying, well, if you've got a business that is dealing with the impact of COVID-19, then yes, we will look at it. Um, and then otherwise everything else seems to because I guess with the oil price having hit negative and all the other things that are happening around the economy, the issue that we've got is, you know, what is the damage after COVID-19? What does that look like? Will demand still be there for certain services and certain products? Uh, I mean, even if people were building tech products right now, are they actually going to be something that the market's going to need? Um, because we're not going to be the same as we used to. So um, there's a lot that we need to look at. So Philip, um, again, coming to you. So in your network, you've obviously got more than 10,000 companies. Again, 
is this the investor scene? I mean, is this a topic that comes up? And if it does, I mean, what are people saying to you? Um, it kind of depends where people are in their business. I mean, um, the people that have got in touch, I suppose, are people who just buy bad luck, like entrepreneurs at the kind of end of their runway, let's say if they're kind of equity backed. So the timing has just been very bad for them and they were looking to fundraise, it's it's fallen through or it's falling through and then they're just in a kind of a particularly weak position. There are obviously other companies who are fine and have raised relatively recently and can just cut costs and, you know, try to weather the storm. So I think it's just on, it's very much a kind of individual kind of basis as to as the, as the kind of the, where they are in their business cycle. And, and, it, and it, the, Henry's kind of observation earlier, kind of backed by the data is kind of, is something that anecdotally we've kind of seen as well, which is the smaller ones are kind of almost hibernating. Some of the companies, some of them are, are the directors of um, uh, um, kind of furloughed themselves and they're just, you know, it's not an ideal situation for them obviously, but they found a way to kind of keep, keep just keep going at least personally, financially, and then to wait until things, things clear up. Um, but, you know, it might be that they never start their company again as well. I mean, there's no getting away from the fact that if this goes on for too long, they'll, you know, seek to, they might, their, their kind of desire to be an entrepreneur might kind of flounder in the, you know, within this. And if they can find other employment in one of these areas that's, that's growing, they might, they might well switch to, to something a little bit safer. Because it's definitely not a time where entrepreneurs are, <laughs> is the best place to be. It's probably better to be working for a, a large tech company or something like that rather than starting your own. So, um, yeah, that's just the reality of this current climate. Yeah, no, no, it's interesting because, I mean, we have been through these types, well, I guess not a pandemic like this. I mean, this is obviously on another level, but we had the 2008 crash and we had, you know, similar situations where, well, not every business was uh, yeah, closed down, I mean, the way that around the world at the moment, but the financial crisis did have a huge impact on people's livelihoods, on, on large corporates, uh, on what happened. But businesses did pivot they did redirect and they did try and change and a lot of companies at that time whether they were smaller they did survive so i guess there are lessons learned to be learned from there that we do get through these situations as well so it's not all doom and gloom there are positive sides to it um so just kind of moving on then to to the real kind of uh, crux of today's um, uh, discussion is the future fund right so i mean i think it's quite a welcoming uh, initiative that's been introduced by the chancellor i mean there's still sort of some gaps there i think that i see for myself um, but usually welcome in the fact that, you know, it's opened up opportunities for a number of companies. Um, so, Henry, could you tell us a little bit more about the Future Fund? Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll try and do my best. Uh, obviously, it's not, not our fund. Um, so the, the Future Fund is a, a co-investment vehicle uh, by the government to, to match fund private investment uh, into private companies via a um, convertible note. Um, so it's 50-50 it's matched um, from for ticket sizes from 250,000 to one and a half million. I think I think I'm right in saying. Um, Philip can correct me if I'm wrong. Um, and uh, it's it's a convertible note, so it's done as debt um, that will convert at the next um, eligible round. Um, so that uh, provides some ease with regards to not having to um, sort of figure out valuations under under duress and things like that. Um, the company does have the option to repay, um, but there is a penalty for that. So it's very much designed um, as an equity instrument with the convertibility um, being to, to ease the practicalities in the short term uh, rather than for it to be, be viewed as a debt instrument. Okay, and, and it's an interesting concept because what the government is saying is that we will invest in you if you can find a private investor. 
So basically co-invest with, with someone else. And you've got to have had investment in the past mm -hmm. as well. So that leaves me to think that this is really going to be for those companies that are already high growth companies or already in a, in a position where they're probably a little bit more advanced. But there isn't really that opportunity for other startups that could possibly be successful, maybe who haven't had the 250 investment in the last five years, but maybe they've had smaller amounts or maybe they've generated revenue. So that leaves them out of the gap. So, um, Philip, what would you say about yeah, that? Yeah, I mean, I, the original plan, so there were different plans going around, I suppose, and it wasn't the, the only kind of idea posited by different groups wasn't just to have a um, co like a co-investment fund it was to have just a pot of money that you could give out that could, could be given out by the British Business Bank or another kind of proxy I suppose um, maybe a private fund that was that was just acting on behalf of the government with no with no fees um, there were different models and in the end they went for this I think it's kind of understandable in a way as to why this won out because it's kind of less kind of costly it's also less kind of due diligence in a way for the government because they it require it doesn't it's not, they're not going to get so many applications because it requires first of you first people trying to find another investment another thing i'd say is that the the amount is probably higher than most people think and i know that henry's written about this on, on the bohurst blog as well that i think people are looking for something more like a hundred thousand um um match fund or or an even maybe less also in terms of what, what's been previously raised in order to just open up to more companies um and i think i think it's fair to say that the details haven't been set in stone as of yet so something like that could change we've seen changes in every other government announcement so far so there's no reason why it wouldn't change but as you say this does leave people you know um, kind of startups early stage startups without access to this um and I think you know, unless it's changed, then I don't think there'll be another, I don't know for sure, obviously, but I'm not sure there'll be another kind of equity instrument for them. Um, it might be that, it, that the civils needs to be fixed, or there could be, if you're looking at really early stage or like what the grant system for, that you get at the moment through business rates, that could be opened up, for example, to um, kind of proper kind of startups that are like in co-working spaces and other areas. So, I don't think this is the only kind of show in town necessarily for future changes to support um, kind of smaller startups, but I think they could certainly um, kind of improve the terms um, that they're currently offering. And I, as, as I said, I think Henry's kind of articulated that really well um, in, a, in a blog, which I'm sure he could uh, kind of uh, talk about. But um, yeah, but I, I kind of agree with that. I think on the margin, we can we can improve this. Okay, so Henry, please do share your insights. Um, I think overall, there's, um, there's there's two ways of looking at this fund. Uh, I, you know, I don't I don't think it's a bad idea, and in fact, it, it's quite similar to what Scotland's had for a while. This is, in essence, the same as the Scottish Investment Bank's model um, of of taking stakes in promising businesses, and you know, it could be a nice way to fund businesses and and do pretty well for, for the UK taxpayer as well. So it's sort of not bad from from that point of view. If you are trying to view it as the solution uh, for all high growth companies, uh, particularly startups, but also scale ups who aren't eligible for civils, it, it's, it's not enough. Um, it does one particular thing, which is fix uh, deficiencies in the VC and possibly the private market awaiting clarification on the, um, the tax reliefs. But it, it fixes a problem in the, in the VC market. Um, so it, it sort of ensures that the economic uncertainty that's causing that to not function is, is sort of better better oiled and for that purpose it does pretty well actually um, but 
there are a huge number of companies, as, as Philip's been alluding to, that fall outside the scope of that. So of the, of the 30,000 we've identified um, over the period of 10 years as sort of being the, the high growth um, ecosystem in the UK, only about 7,500 at all would be eligible for this um, current scheme. Um, right. If we uh, lowered uh, the threshold to £100,000 of previous funding, that increases that by another 3,000 companies. So it's definitely worth doing and you know, gets us close to it sort of being a third of companies that, um, that are helped by this. But there are still a number that, um, that fall outside the range of that. But that's, um, as Philip was alluding to, it's, it's not going to be one, there's no one silver bullet to, although I don't know if you want to try and help companies with a bullet, but um, there's no one silver bullet to, to solve the problem here. And uh, some of the companies we look at are actually eligible for civils. So that program is, is helping, although there are problems in rolling it out. It is um, partly the, the right idea. Um, there are the furloughing scheme uh, is useful for some companies, has its problems sort of fundamentally in that people are being paid to not be productive. Um, uh, so there are some issues there. We think there should be more incentives to retain people in um, productive employment. Um, there are VAT payment holidays, um, which are very useful, um, particularly if you're sort of teetering on the cusp between being a loss making equity backed company and moving into profitability where you might be able to look at um, some of the loan schemes. Uh, those things are, are pretty important. So we're, we're awaiting clarification from HMRC to um, see how those payment holidays interact with um, the R&D tax credits you would have got. And R&D tax credits are another great vehicle. They're already an incredible boon um, for companies prior to coronavirus. So we think that could be a really interesting vehicle um, to shore up those companies. You know, on, on the premise that those companies have already been subsidized by the UK taxpayer, there's a massive incentive to make sure that that doesn't come, become sort of lost, that, that all of the, the money we've invested as, as taxpayers in those companies doesn't get lost. Um, obviously, there is the, the sort of sunk costs uh, conundrum there, um, but uh, there, there should be something we can do through that, that vehicle as well. Okay, great. So, I mean, hopefully we'll see, I mean, we haven't received clarity yet, but as you say, there are companies that are left out of this fund um, that could well do with it. And I don't know, you know what the government's appetite is going to be to sort of review this and perhaps look at including others. But um, when we look at civils and we look at what's happened so far, I mean, a lot of companies complaining about how it works, the process, banks themselves being very new to it and not understanding the process. So it hasn't gone as smoothly as it should. Um, others are saying they've been rejected for silly reasons, getting personal guarantees, etc. But then when you look at sort of the um, the Sybil's loan scheme, you know, we're looking at high interest rates. Um, so a lot of people, are they actually even going to be able to pay them back eventually? But when you compare that to the future fund, I mean, there are some benefits to that because you're obviously getting a loan, which then is matched by somebody else. But then there isn't any need to pay that back unless you go for a future round of funding or it can be converted to equity. So there are advantages and benefits to that. Now, there is small print, which I did find today on this uh, future fund, which kind of worried me a little bit because um, the, there are things around the valuation cap, the interest rate, the decision making and the warranties and, and all the other things, transfers. So what should companies be thinking? I mean, in, in, obviously, we don't know the details. So maybe I'm just sort of stabbing in the dark here. But is there, I mean, in your mind, are there things that come to your mind that a fund like this that people should be wary of or concerned about? So things that we didn't understand about Sybils when it was first introduced, you know, if it was clearer, then people probably wouldn't have had to spend, you know, days and weeks trying to kind of uh, go for that application and then realize actually they're only going to be rejected. We don't have any of that information. Everything is sort of led by time because everything is everyone's short on time. 
are there any things that people should be wary of this particular fund or should you look out for or to think about before they jump into an application, Henry? Um, certainly, I think the, to, to limit it to one that I would, I would really flag is the fact that the government can, can sell on um, this debt. So you don't necessarily know who will be on your cap table when it converts, um, unless you take the option to, to pay the punitive um, 2x um, penalty to, to repay it. Um, and and that's, a, that's a bit of a, an issue. We, we sort of get why it's in there. That sort of um, flexibility for the government makes sense that they may change their mind about wanting to manage a portfolio of small holdings in small companies. You know, it, it makes sense from that point of view, but it is a risk for, for the company taking on um, this debt that, um, that you could end up with someone unknown, an unknown fund um, on, your, on your cap table. Um, obviously, the, the VCs involved have been very pro this, um, and uh, as far as the, the, the government portion can, um, is concerned, they don't mind it converting to equity because that equity is um, likely to just follow their input and, and their decisions. So in, in effect, they get um, a larger stake or a larger stake with um, input without, um, without paying for it. So um, there's a lot of it that, that makes sense from the, the fund size, fund side, um, but um, I think you need to be wary of as, as, a, as a company. But obviously, all of this goes with the, uh, the caveat that it may be better to have an unknown investor on your cap table uh, than to go bust. Yes, no, absolutely. Uh, it's an interesting question, actually, just relevant to this. I mean, five votes to ask that question. So I'm just going to ask it while we're on this subject. So does the match funding have to be new funding or can you just use old funding? I'm assuming it's new funding. Yeah. I mean, you can't use funding that you've already had. So, yeah. So I think that's the answer to that one, unless uh, anybody. Um, I think there was a, there was a technical question around um, converting existing debt to equity and whether you could count that. Again, I would say probably no, but that is a slightly slightly different question. Okay. Um, so we've got lots of questions, and I'm thinking I'm mindful to actually go to the questions rather than continue my side, um, because it'd probably be a bit more engaging for those who are asking them. <laughs> um, so the next question we've got is: Will the total amount of government loan, as well as third-party monies, be treated as a convertible loan, or will the third-party investor be expected to take an equity stake on day one? Anybody? <laughs> um, I think it's it's the same instrument. Um, I don't think it's um, converting at the same time. Uh, uh, sorry, I think they are converting at the same time further down the line. I don't think it's that there's an equity and then a convertible. But Philip, do you know? Yeah, I think that's the case. I think it has to be on the same terms as well. But um, yeah, I wouldn't be. Uh, yeah, I wouldn't invest on the back of my <laughs> that that particular piece of advice from myself because yeah, I haven't looked at that actually. Seeing as the government's preference is for this to mainly be an equity instrument, um, so it's a convertible for convenience. If the the um, other investor was getting their equity stake at that point, it would make most sense for the government to just take the equity stake at the same time. But um, it's for the sake of avoiding things around valuation, um, because you don't want anyone sort of being being gouged on that um, when times are tough. Okay, great, thank you. Um, so given that the government relief package for startups only kicks in if you can secure more funding, is this really enough, particularly for companies that aren't looking to fundraise? Uh, probably no, I think alluding uh, to our, our earlier comments, probably no. There was also the announcement of £750 million um, via Innovate UK, which will address some of the companies Philip and I have been talking about. Admittedly, um, it looks mostly like that is existing money through, um, already allocated to Innovate UK, um, but uh, the details will be around how that's going to be allocated faster and probably to slightly different um, purposes and ends. 
Um, certainly when we look at our, our data, um, an interesting cohort of the ones that aren't supported by the Future Fund or Sybils are the ones that have been funded by grants to date, um, whether that's Innovate UK or EU Horizon 2020 programs. There are about two and a half thousand companies with um, probably the most promising IP in the country um, that aren't served by, by any of the current programs. Um, but we're expecting that uh, the Innovate UK package will be, will be targeting them pretty directly. And it's... And so can we talk about that? No, just Sorry, saying, yeah, I mean, that's quite it. significant as well. So I think any 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 company owners who've got money through Innovate UK, I suppose that but on the face of it looks like the most um, kind of promising option. But obviously that leaves out quite a few. I think um, on going back to kind of the Sybils issue, so looking at what could be done, I think it's fair to say that that's not working properly at the moment um, from company perspective, probably not from anyone's perspective, um, British Business Bank either. Um, so I think there's definitely room for changes there, and they've already obviously made changes by putting in um, new new uh, providers as well. So it can it could be done. I mean, if you look at what's happening in so at the moment, there's issues around state aid, and I think like always, the UK government is kind of being much more uh, um, kind of compliant than other countries. If you look at the various applications that be made to the Commission from other countries, including the German one, which feels like it's going a lot further than the UK. Um, they have accepted it. And so I think there might be kind of room for maneuver there. Um, if you look at the Swiss solution, which is the um, slightly different, that's backed 100% by the government. I'm not sure whether that's possible in the UK, Switzerland being slightly different in terms of um, number of companies and the wealth of the country as well. But it's there's potential for at least things be, being opened up a little bit on that front. And given that they've already played around with it and given it's a the instrument feels like it's a bigger deal I suppose than than, than the future fund in, in many ways it's supposed to address a, a wider constituent of companies I think that might be the one that where that kind of concern is raised in the question might be might be dealt with okay and and in terms of Innovate UK so I did see I mean obviously my focus was around the future fund but there was something around the Innovate UK and grant funding becoming available as well um, are you able to share any more information about that? Um, I don't think much more is, is no, not, not in the public domain. Um, if you're saying um, that uh, Innovate UK does use a team of um, sort of portfolio managers, so they'll be aware of their companies who don't have any kind of external financing support. Um, so they will be looking um, directly at them, which is why I anticipate it will be towards those kinds of companies um, that the support is um, directed. Within the, within the statement, there's um, a suggestion. I think it's 175 million of support will be for new for firms not currently supported by Innovate UK. So there is hope. There will hopefully be money. I mean, it's very early days, so I don't think they they literally haven't decided exactly how it's going to work yet. But it looks like they they at least in the press release they've said they they some of it will be for people who haven't claimed before. I expect you'd need to be, and you'd have to feel like a kind of knowledge intensive company, the kind of thing that Innovate UK would normally fund in order to access it, but we, I, I don't, you know, that, those details aren't worked out yet. Yeah, no, it's early days, it's early days, but I just wanted to put it out there in case you guys are so knowledgeable and so <laughs> much with about data that I thought I'd ask the question. Um, so the other question we've got is about what can companies really be doing to, to be in with a chance of securing the future fund? And I guess it's really sort of the simple things is you, you've got to prepare and, and uh, make sure that you know what it is that you're looking for and, and, and put your value proposition out there and, and start looking for private investors first because... Yeah. 
Yeah, the, it should, in theory, be not too dissimilar to, to the process of fundraising um, before. That, that, I dropped yeah, out. What the aim is. Can you hear me? I think we can hear, yes. Uh, yeah. sure, uh, maybe Hello, I'll talk over the, over the top. That's all right. We, we can hear you, Asma. Henry, if, if you want to jump on, I think you should be OK now, Asma. Sure, great. Thanks. Uh, oh, we have, we have lost Asma. <laughs> it's us. Um, yeah, so it it should um, it should function somewhat like it did um, did before. Uh, so the the whole point of the the intervention is to uh, give private investors the um, the courage and de-risk some of their investment through um, uh, having government money alongside, um, so that they start to invest in in something like the way they were prior to all of this. Um, so the the requirements remain the same in terms of getting a private investor. It's just they. Um, will be more ready to invest than if they didn't have the the extra security of the extra um, government money. And I guess just to add to that, there's at the moment there's a specific pot of, of money, and that um, will presumably, if, if there's appetite for it, will run out. So you'd want to be in there early. There is a sense that I get, which definitely don't uh, kind of back that if they do get to the limit, that they'll then increase the fund because it will show that it's at least being successful at what it's what it's doing and i would i'd be surprised if they didn't do it at that point but i would i would think that timing would be um important um on this because if you know don't want to take the risk of it running out and you not being able to access it if you if if it, you do see it within your business interest to, to to access it i mean i should add to that 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 there, some people don't think it is within their business interest to to, to do this and i've had um, emails from entrepreneurs saying that they're not going to go for this. Obviously, their choice isn't between going bust and, and accessing this finance, but it is between that they were looking at it as a potential for how to kind of keep their business going or how to raise new 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 money, and they'll be looking at doing it in other ways or maybe cutting costs. So it's I, don't, I wouldn't say that it's it's definitely not free money. It's not it's not like one of the grants or or one of the more generous things like the furlough scheme, which seem much more of a kind of no no brainer, I suppose, for a lot of businesses. Yeah, that, that's super helpful. Thanks, guys. I, I guess almost a sub question of that is um, if you are looking to, to get some funding, does it have to be from an independent third party or could, say, a chairman uh, invest and then have that matched? Hmm. It's I'm not sure of the rules around that. I guess it would it might be a matter of structuring or it might be a matter of whether it's kind of plays plays by the, the rules. Um, so they haven't within the guidelines they don't talk about that specific um, aspect and there's other issues around whether um kind of other kind of things like convert other like previous convertible loans or advanced subscription funds and like and simple agreements for uh, for future equity can count and i don't know the answer to these i'm kind of making it <laughs> not being very helpful but basically there's there's a lack of clarity um so far for people for at least what, what we're hearing back they, as to what, what exactly will count. Um, I don't know if you have a better view on that, uh, um, Henry. No, I don't. That's a really, really interesting question around the, um, you know, what fully counts as external funds um, there. Uh, it's certainly one worth um, digging into further. And I guess the bigger question there is around EIS and whether EIS will be, I think that's not been asked, but it's what we're hearing a lot is, is will EIS be kind of counted under this? And, and there again, the answer is we're not, people aren't sure at the moment. There's, I think, and that's very much a kind of 50-50 as to whether it will be possible to do that. I don't know what your, whether you've got 
anything to add to that, Henry, or on the EIS front, if you've heard anything? We've we've not heard anything, but we you know, our, our hunch is probably that it is meant to in, include that. Um, there are some technical difficulties around it being a convertible. Um, but I'm given to understand that that's more to do with HMRC guidance. So they, if they can move, convert some convertibles can be EIS eligible depending on when they they convert. Again, is my understanding. I'm not a tax expert, yeah. um, and uh, I think there's there's guidance around a long stop date for that. That is around six months. Um, if that is changed, either in general or um, waived for this scheme. Uh, it, it should be possible. So it, it's sort of quite an easy change to make technically is my understanding. And because um, you know, the EIS is a great scheme in, in normal times, you sort of want to double down on that uh, encouraging investment flows. So it would, would make sense for um, the, the government to, to allow that. Um, obviously, there's a huge caveat. There's lots of things that would make sense for the government to do. <laughs> than necessarily do. Thank you. So apologies. I don't know if I have to use a colleague's computer to come back. Um, I don't know if you can hear me, but yes. Okay, I've got a few more questions, and people are asking a little bit about sort of other than funding. You know, what can companies do to survive and thrive in this environment? Um, and I guess it's probably you know around. You don't. All, not all companies want to have fundraising. Not all companies need financial help. But what can they do in terms of you know? they're operational um, what could they be doing to continue to generate revenue um, or st strategies in terms of being able to um, pivot the business that they have um, so anything that you've seen in you know amongst your sort of networks that you've seen that's working for people any sort of tips around that I mean there's very specific instances I suppose of you know bars turning into kind of cocktail delivery businesses and all these kind of pivots you can have in terms of or events companies suddenly setting up as, um, as and doing these things virtually. And I think every, it's kind of, I suppose, knowing what to do in some senses or what could be done is, is, is not necessarily the challenge, it's the challenge of actually physically doing that and pivoting. And I think the longer you have done business a certain way, the harder that is and that's the kind of impression that I've got from kind of speaking to lots of business owners in, in different stages I think once it gets to a certain point and you've built a business a certain way it's a bit like the kind of Kodak analogy where they kind of knew that digital cameras were happening but they mm. physically couldn't pivot their business towards it even though they had um, the IP around it and they, it just wasn't a possibility for them to, for them to manage that change um, so I mean you know, I'm not one to give advice, <laughs> to be honest, because it's um, you know, mm. everyone's got their own challenges of running businesses. But um, I guess the adaptability thing is critical, and just you know, taking stock and realizing what's going to happen. I guess one of the challenges, though, going back to previously, is the things we've talked about is the is knowing how things, how different things are actually going to be at the other end of it, uh, end of it, and that's really that could be a kind of timescale thing as well. So it might be that some, you know, by the end, by the Time that things are more back uh, back to normal, that that, uh, that that the kind of economy has changed in in a, in a fundamental way. And if that's happened, then I think the government's. If that does happen, then the government is going to have to let more businesses go under than they would otherwise, mm -hmm. um, because the whole premise behind this is keep freeze the economy, keep people in jobs, you know, kind of flatten the curve, open up the economy, everything goes back to normal, but we've yeah. learned something in the process. And I think that's the right strategy, 100%. But if it goes on for, if it goes on for longer and has actually fundamental changes in the way that people live and work and buy things, then that requires people to move 
capital into more efficient uses and that requires people to change their business model requires some degree of bankruptcy i suppose or, or business models that don't work anymore and it requires new investment in new ideas so and i don't i don't think we've got we're on that latter point yet but i think on the, we're, we're more on the former point of let's keep things in check and make sure things are back to normal um, at the end of it so i think the, the ability to adapt is obviously the, the critical skill at this time Okay, great. Um, that's a very helpful answer, actually. Um, but I'm just going on. I think a lot of people are obviously sceptical about this fund and, and asking questions around it and whether it's the right allocation of funds by the government at this particular time. But I think they're obviously minimising and reducing their risk by asking for co-investment anyway for private investors who will probably undertake the due diligence. But Henry, do you have any sort of thoughts on that? Whether the allocating this accurately and is it the right use of funds? And I, I guess this is sort of coming from taxpayer money, I don't know. Yeah, so it's, um, it's, it's a, this gets to a broader sort of um, political economic conversation of you know, what mm -hmm. the government is in, in this kind of crisis and, and generally. Um, yeah, if, if the pool is unlimited, then it makes sense that you should do um, uh, everything you can. And given the amounts that are being talked about, it feels like the pool is unlimited, although that, that's not sort of necessarily true with all of these things. It's it's one thing to commit to a scheme of a certain size, but you don't actually know what, what extent of that will be drawn down um, in, in either it being less or, or more, as it looks like some of the schemes uh, may end up falling into. Um, so there is a sort of, you, you you may have decisions being made around, you know, if we, we have X number of billions to, to throw in support, um, there is a question of, are you throwing it at, at uh, the right thing? And the, the view has clearly been taken around this fund is that it's actually um, quite a cheap way to um, reignite the, the private funding market and long-term upside to the um, to the taxpayer. That's sort of what's being designed as a low-cost intervention um, with potentially some quite big um, some quite big upside uh, with the, the equity stakes that the, the government ends up holding. Um, so I, I think it's, it's, okay. it's worth doing if it doesn't then mean that there's there's no money left to, to go to the other things mm. Philip, Philip and I have mentioned. Um, yeah. That. So I guess from there, the, the, what's being asked is that the loan is for a maximum of three years. But what happens in the situation? And I guess probably we'll see the criteria come out anyway in, in, in sort of coming days and weeks. But what if people can't pay the loan back within three years or they haven't secured the next round of funding? Um, you know, are they going to have to pay back double the loan at that stage? I mean, I've seen interest rates of 8% right now, but then I've also seen in some information that they're saying that uh, it will be twice as much as the loan money was at the, at the start of the funding. So it's, it's both, actually. Um, you'd have to pay the interest and um, the, the principal twice over. So it is deliberately designed as a penalty. Um, that is because it is designed as to be an equity instrument. So that, again, the, the reason it's convertible is to deal with some of the practicalities now. So you don't have to set evaluation now and things like that. Um, it is intended that it will convert to equity. So you're not really, it, the government doesn't really want you to, to pay that penalty in essence um, back to this um, to this fund. Um, so you, the government's getting the interest and then, then your um, equity uh, stake as well. That, that's the, the upside for the government. Okay, now, so that's, uh, and, and Philip, do you have anything on that? Or? Um, yeah, I'd say in terms of value for money, I think that that's, um, I think it's quite, I think the government's kind of set that up so that it's pretty good value for money in, in terms of the scheme in and of itself. Um, just looking 
through some of the questions. I mean, will people move country? I, um, I'd say because they, they won't benefit from it now. Um, moving to another country, I don't think that they would now. I suppose there might be, depending on how different countries manage this, we might see the, eco the ecosystem of another city or country. Um, when by city, I'm going to be London, or, I suppose, principally, but you could say like Manchester as well and Cambridge and other kind of tech hubs. If the UK government doesn't manage it particularly well, then you could see people moving afterwards, particularly European founders, many of which are kind of running the fastest growing companies in the UK, you could see them potentially think actually, you know, Germany was better at this time or France mm. was better at this time at looking after us and it could be the kind of marginal decision to, 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 yeah. to, to kind of push people to relocate. But I don't think your average startup's going to relocate off the back of this because it's that's yeah. not enough of a reason to, to do it. You'd need quite, you need other reasons as well, I suppose. No, but again, both of those are investors in the last couple of days i mean foreign investors particularly i mean i don't know what it is about investors, but they like government-backed schemes <laughs> things that's associated with government and they've kind of been a bit more welcoming and uh, uh liking this whole you know sort of uh, initiative that, that's come out and i've seen people say that you know if we can see that there are companies that the government will back then we will obviously invest in those companies obviously provided that they're passionate about the product or, the, or they like the company that they've got so i've seen a general tone in investors um i think if i found a company that i felt you know had something that to offer or was dealing with an impact as a result of this covid um or was doing something different then i would probably jump to want to co-invest with the government as well um so i think it's a welcome initiative overall i can see there are issues around it there are gaps and there are concerns and but then that comes with every investment you see it with vcs you see it with other sort of equity houses you see it with other private investors people have their own kind of terms and conditions and there are difficulties so you know if you're going to get money at a time like this and i think you know, there's less scrutiny in terms of what the due diligence is required by the government. The investor sometimes has its own, but I just feel it's a, it's a welcome opportunity. Um, so there are more questions around the future fund, but again, I think we've got limited information as to what the criteria might look like. So somebody's asking about the criteria. So I think we'll probably need to wait and see, and we've probably given as much as we can um, in, in this particular session, I believe. Um, so then another one on civils, um, and again, bank, bank Oh, it's disappeared. Where's it gone? Ah. Oh. So if you're not looking for 250k equity funding through government and the other investor are CIBS, the best alternative, or are there other sources of funding? <coughs> uh, um, unless you can get, obviously there's business rate grants and things like that. I'd say with, I'd say um, Sybils is probably the most, yeah, would be the most obvious. Um, but there you have to mm -hmm. have been, this is not kind of the case for a lot of high growth startups. It's, even though they have kind of profitable lines, product lines of some sort, um, they're still they were still running a loss at the end of the year, so they're being rejected um, by their banks. But as I say, there might be changes to that potentially, and and those sorts of businesses might be um, at some point. Uh, so that could be, I think, that would be more likely to be an option. But yeah, I'd say um, yeah, civil it's obviously civil is a loan, so it's just whether you know that's another business decision as to whether it's. The right thing to take on a loan at that, uh, you know, at, at this at this point, it's yeah. it's not something you should any kind of decision you should take lightly, I suppose. 
I know, great. So I think we're coming sort of to the end of our session. It's gone really quickly. Um, but before we kind of sort of uh, finish and sum up, I think we, should, we ought to really say something about uh, failure as well, because we've talked about all the positive things and, you know, what companies could be doing, how they could be changing, the scene on the investment side, um, sort of pivoting your business. But realistically speaking, times like this, there will be companies that crash. There will be those that go bust and maybe won't make it. Um, what can they do? I mean, surely there are things that they could be doing. So as an example, you know, someone who's really talented was probably in a startup and maybe can't continue and has to shut up shop now. Could they become a co-founder in another company? I mean, what other things do you th think that people should think about at times like this where you're looking at failing companies? Yeah. Henry? Um, I would oh, sorry, I guess some some of the dynamics we're seeing in the fundraising market are, are sort of mirrored there. Um, in, in that you know there are opportunities to be had. Companies need money now more than before. Um, and again, one of our criticisms of the furloughing scheme is companies need productive employees now more than more than before. Um, if your current business has has gone under, basically your price slightly slightly drops. If you if you need to be doing something, you can you can offer yourself more competitively to other companies who might be, be thriving. And, and there are those out there, as I, as I sort of said at the top of this, um, there are companies that, that are doing well and there are still companies that, that are hiring, um, but they'll, they'll know that they hold all the, anyone hiring now holds a lot, of, a lot of power in that conversation. So the dynamics there will have, have shifted. Um, but if you're sort of willing, to, particularly if you're looking very early stage, if you're willing to offer up you know, more than you would than you would ordinarily, um, whether that's that's asking for less pay or whether you know, you're you're just more more committed to what you're what you're looking to do. Um, there there are opportunities there, but um, it, it's yeah. The back it's great. I think it's been creative, isn't it? Trying to find can actually survive through this period and then come through it and then perhaps look at the options available once we've got a bit. Um, and just final question, Philip, for you. Um, I read an article that you wrote somewhere about uh, revolutionising the relationship between the government and the entrepreneur or the startup. And I just really wanted to explore what you meant by that and what, you know, where, where you're going with that and how that can happen. Um, well, I guess, I mean, just before, I, just before this kind of kicked off, I was in Estonia, for example, and I've been into a few countries, see how things are done differently. Um, and I think there's, you know, the model of how entrepreneurs and government interact in the UK is kind of pretty old fashioned and potent and kind of ripe for disruption. And I suppose we're probably seeing some of that now, actually, when you look at all of the tax, all the HMRC's interactions now, suddenly you can do lots of things online that you couldn't have couldn't do previously because of things like furlough. So I guess that what we look, the thing, that we'd like to see in the medium to long term, it's obviously not the time for the government to be thinking about this stuff necessarily right now, is looking at models for how government and business can have a, have a much kind of much better relationship um, in terms of the way that people pay taxes, the way that, for example, a lot of the problems with, for, I'll, I'll give you an example, like company, company directors who pay themselves in dividends, obviously losing out currently um, with the current system because they can't, um, you they can't um kind of separate the hmrc can't properly separate dividends that are paid through wages through uh, as through investments so because of that they're not government can't properly target them with the kind of support that they would presumably target target otherwise um so we just don't have the data it doesn't connect up everyone that's dealt with any kind of fun function of government realizes how frustrating it can be so i think a lot of um, just putting every, everything online having having systems which interact or so that, for example, there was a rule that was introduced in 
Estonia, which meant that as a business owner, you only had to give information to one department. And if then another department asked for information, as long as that information was shared, so for example, your name or address, that then they would have to take it from them. They couldn't ask you. And just doing that meant that all the departments started sharing data, like data that they're allowed to share. Um, and all this sits on blockchain technology and it's been like the Russians have tried to hack it and everything. So it's very kind of secure. It's not like it's not it's much safer than the current systems we have in place in the UK. So this is the this these are the kind of ideas I think. It's not definitely not top of mind of everyone yeah, yeah. No, no, anyone here, but but it's critical, I think, and it's, it's the future yeah. of the state. No, no, absolutely. And I think anything that sort of revolutionizes the relationship with government and the way business is done in the UK and to encourage and support that is always welcome. So just some summary, sort of final words from both of you, please, just to close off today um, in terms of your top tips from today. Um, yeah, I think overall I, I would round up and say yeah, that the Future Fund is interesting. It, um, it will serve a function. It is not going to help every single high growth company in the UK. There are other schemes, some of them already working, and we, we hope to, to see more, um, particularly around um, the really IP intensive, but very early stage pre-revenue companies. Absolutely, I mean, I'd, I would echo that. I'd say that the, yeah, the Future Fund service purpose, I'd say it's not the final iteration of either the Future Fund or any of the other schemes. So I think you'll see changes to this and changes to, to, to the other scheme. So I think it's definitely worth kind of keeping an eye out on as to as to what's happening and how that will impact impact your business and probably talking it's quite hard to follow everything i mean we, we we try our best but you know maybe having a group of other business owners or following you know the major announcements um and not getting too much into the um yeah into kind of people like getting trusted sources i suppose and, and, and finding hubs where the business where where the british business bank or the government is kind of putting out information and using that as sources because there's, there's so many kind of rumors that that are kind of that go around around these things and misinformation so and means to people people kind of making mistakes i suppose so so for example the furlough scheme is possible when you're applying for that to to apply too much in advance and then lose your flexibility going forward for and that's an example where i think that most business owners don't realize that and there's a few of these things that can trip people up so yeah just just do your due diligence fantastic thank you both so much i mean you've provided some valuable insights today and you're doing amazing work so i really appreciate you attending and i'm sure everyone who's listening will have obviously taken a lot away from today so thank you and ben may i ask you just to pop up and uh, just give some closing words yeah, th th thank you so much, guys. Um, and, and thanks for everybody who's still sort of uh, hanging, hanging around with us. I know a few people have, have uh, had to go at three o'clock. Um, so what, what we'll do now, guys, is, is we'll make everybody available for a little bit of networking and a bit of chat. So if, if we weren't able to get your questions, and, and sorry, I know we missed a few, um, please feel free to jump in um, and, and have a chat. Um, Henry and Philip will be available. Um, just double click onto their table. You'll, you'll see their logo um, above it. Um, please turn on your mics and your cameras, um, jump in, have a chat both with, with ourselves from Centuro, Henry and Philip, and then also just some of the other people in here as well. Um, it's great to sort of obviously connect with peers and understand what, what everybody's sort of going through. So jump in now, have a good time, and uh, hopefully we'll see you at the next webinar. Thanks so much. Thank you.